This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now, it's time to decentralize. Well, for those of you just joining us, welcome. Uh, You've landed in our weekly gathering here on Clubhouse. What do you think, Amir, Jane? Should we get things started? Sure. All right. Hello and welcome, everyone. You've landed here at TGIF DCT, our weekly gathering here on Clubhouse. For those of you joining us live, welcome. We'll follow our usual format, cover an interesting talk of the week, and open up the mic to hear from you. If you're listening on our podcast platform, Decentralized, welcome. Just remember, you can always jump in live with us on Fridays, 12 to 1 Eastern. Um, for uh, this week, we're doing a bit of a year-end wrap-up since we're coming up on the uh, the end of the calendar year. Seems like a nice time to regroup on things that went well, things that maybe didn't, uh, what are the things that surprised us, um, and then hopefully it'll set us up well for some prognostication and forecasting when we enter the new year. Uh, with that, I think I covered everything to get us started. Just, um, Craig, just so you know, you've got a lot of road noise behind you, just so you know. Is that right? You're saying I should uh, I should yeah. roll up the windows and uh, and get inside the car? <laughs> well, just, just, just so you know, yeah. <laughs> I'll, uh, well, I'll let you kick things off then, Amir, Jane. What, what are some of your uh, thoughts, Jane? I know you had started to sketch out a few uh, themes by quarter. Do you want to guide us through some of the quarter by quarter play by play you were thinking about? Sure. Well, I can definitely get the ball rolling here. So we'll start with Q1. And and because this is a different format, Craig, are you open to letting people raise their hand and chime in at any point during the meeting today? Let's do exactly that. If folks have a question, a perspective, a Uh, jump on any of these topics, feel free. Raise your hand at any time. Use that little hand-raising icon that uh, Clubhouse gives you in the bottom right and join us here uh, in the conversation. Cool. All right. Well, in January, the first thing that we did within DTRA was figure out what we were going to work on and really focus a lot on the initiatives and how we could drive to digital outputs. But one of the more public activities we were involved in was holding a listening session in response to the request for information from the Office of the National Coordinator of Health IT 
and OSTP, if I'm correct about that. And that was all about technology, data interoperability, and what needs to change for clinical trials to evolve. So I think it was around the third week of January where we had a discussion with leaders from those organizations that was facilitated by leaders from across our member organizations. And I, I'm not sure if anyone who's here in the audience was actually part of that conversation, but I'm going to turn it back to you, Craig and Amir, to kind of highlight what happened there. Did we have any major aha moments? And then we can talk about how that led to a submission, a response to the RFI. So first, take your mind back to that listening session we had with our members and think through, were there any any key highlights that came out? I, I've got a couple, but I bet you do too, Craig and Amir. It's definitely interesting thinking back around some of these guys. A lot of them at the start of the year leaned in around emergency preparedness. And how do we make sure we have the proper infrastructure here in the United States in terms of um, emergency readiness with decentralized trials. And so it's been interesting how much of that is both around in traditional investigator site preparedness, as well as um, some of the novel or newer site models we had still see with pharmacies, as well as with mobile and pop-up models. Um, and now to see some of the um, tilt in the market with the withdrawal of CVS, um, what what is that future for alternative sites that may be needed in terms of emergency readiness? Shane, what other uh, takeaways jump to your mind from those listening sessions? Well, I remember that we had a pretty in-depth conversation around diversity, health equity, and access and how critical these alternative site locations and technology solutions are to enabling that future. Um, and a number of our leaders were part of that discussion. I think what I took away from the conversation that day was that the leaders from ONC and OSTP were totally aligned with the need. They weren't exactly certain how to solve for it. And so I think they were kind of curious and interested in these alternative site models and how they could fit into that equation. Well, the way I think about it is we're really good in the US of kind of having amnesia and, you know, moving along to the next thing. So I think I'm glad that at least some government agencies are thinking about what happens when we have the next pandemic or next emergency. And I think it's important for all of us to have traditional sites more prepared, to have other alternative sites ready just in case. So for me, it's very important that somebody is funding and thinking about this because something is going to happen. And I just hope to God that we're not as unprepared as we are usually. So there were other themes that came up that day as well um, around data and interoperability. Um, one of the things that was in the RFI, if I recall, was around um, how exactly to enable rapid site startup 
in those situations. We didn't really go down that line of inquiry. I'm just calling it out because it was part of the initial RFI. But I think it's interesting that these agencies and divisions of HHS, I think I'm right about that, are thinking about this at a macro and systems level, not just at a solutions in one domain level. So they're thinking about how do you change grants? How do you fix incentives? How do you put MSAs in place? How do you actually train sites so they're ready to go rapidly in a situation where we might need to respond quickly? And all of that translated for us into a, a text-based response to the RFI and what I don't remember exactly, Craig, is whether or not we heard from Stefan and Grail how they had been processing all of those responses. Did you get a sense of that? Well, we did have um, we did have them. Uh, uh, Stefan, at least, represented at the annual meeting for uh, for a few updates, and it sounds like a lot of the action from that is meant to land with ARPA-H as a new federal agency, but as a new federal agency, they're still resourcing and staffing up. So it'll be interesting to see how much of that gets queued up as um, on the to-do list for ARPA-H. You know, it, it, it also, you know, your, your comments remind me about a lot of those conversations around interoperability. And there's a lot of things that get swept together when we're talking about interoperability. It becomes a really big, sometimes vague topic where suddenly we're, we're, we're mixing in all sorts of other concerns around EHR access and connectivity. Can we, um, can, can people effectively search EHRs to find patients? Can people effectively pull data from EHRs to support a future of e-source and interoperability? How much of that is about emergency preparedness? How much of that is just the, the aspects of the future that we need today for, uh, for running good research more efficiently? Thank you for bringing up that ARPA-H is new. I'm going to be honest and say that wasn't even clear to me. I'm still trying to figure out how all of these different segments of the government work together. So um, ARPA-H was started pretty recently and they have a great website that talks about what they're working on. So ARPA H is Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health. Just in case that's a new to you acronym, it is for me. And in October, they released a press release that they are working on an initiative to improve clinical trials, which is where I think, Craig, you're saying that some of the solutions that come out of that RFI are likely to land. Is that right? That is right, and, and that's really important because a lot of that RFI was driven by OSTP, the Office of Science and Technology Policy, which is an office inside the White House. And unlike these divisions within HHS, which um, are persistent, usually with a lot of the scope or areas they're taking on, OSTP will transition with different um, occupants of the White House. And we're coming into an election year, and so you never really know 
if OSTP people and initiatives will continue on. Now, obviously, any division at HHS can be impacted when there's a new occupant in the White House, but ideally, a lot of these priorities around advanced projects, for instance, and clinical trial modernization tend to outlast individual administrations, um, unlike OSDP initiatives and staff. And so there is a nicer story about um, hopefully these types of initiatives and projects outlasting political wind shifts. And just to get a little more um, specific, ARPA has announced that they have this initiative called Advancing Clinical Trial Readiness, ACTR. And the goal of that initiative is to enable 90% of all eligible Americans to take part in a clinical trial within a half hour of their home. So that does align really well to the concept of DCTs and modern clinical trial methods. They're not announcing specific solutions right now. In fact, they're seeking more input. So I encourage you to go check out the ARPA website and see what they're doing and how this work aligns with the mission of both DTRA and the purpose of DCTs as a whole. Now, nobody asked me my opinion on this, but I will, I will share it here just amongst us friends. To me, if you have an acronym, it's either meant to be spelled out like FDA or it's meant to be said like BARDA. And so I do find ARPA-H to be a little bit awkward. It's kind of a hybrid. I feel like we should be calling it like ARPA or some other name that, you know, is a little more consistent. Am I, am I just being nitpicky? Maybe it's Harpa, but you know, I'm gonna feed your words back to you and say, listen, if they've already agreed on the terminology, why bother nitpicking? Fair enough, and we get asked this all the time with DTRA. Are, are you guys DITRA? And the, um, the funny footnote I'll drop to that is, there actually is a federal agency called DITRA, the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, and they go by DITRA, and we've just always called ourselves DTRA. And with the exception of some people in BARDA that focus on um, biohazards in the country, there are very few others out there that kind of straddle both what DTRA is working on and what DITRA works on as a federal agency. Um, so, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't, I shouldn't sweat those details, huh? But now is a time where I would say... I'm curious if anyone in the audience responded to that RFI or if they read it and had a different um, interpretation of it, or if you're already doubled down on the ARPA work and you're offering them solutions. So please, if you're engaged in this or have thoughts to share, just raise your hand and we'll be happy to bring you up on stage. So on the heels of that RFI, there were a couple of other things going on in that first quarter, weren't there? You mentioned as far as uh, some of the priorities in DTRA, um, there was the, uh, the listening session um, around that RFI. What were some of the other reflections you had, Jane, around Q1 of this year? We had a lot of initiatives finalize their deliverables and then work internally with us to craft them into digitized outputs. So that that was uh, a real call to action to our initiative teams to 
finish up and make it public. And I will commend everyone who was involved for making that possible. So thank you to all of you for making that a reality. And and hat tip to you, Jane, because I know that was a, uh, a yeoman's task and you really um, were instrumental with a vision of how those digital and digitized deliverables could be pulled together in a visually accessible way um, with the tube stop map that, that uh, you brought to life. Well, that's definitely a, a collective effort. And um, the more important message for the audience is those deliverables are now available and they're on the DTRA.org website. And you can get to them in a couple of different ways, either through each initiative page with their scope and their deliverables listed out in digital format, or as Craig mentioned, using that end-to-end -end DCT tube stop, which is like a digital playbook from designing your trials through executing them and closing them, where we wove in how those deliverables fit in each process step. So take a look at that, but not because it's right, rather because we're curious to hear what else you think we should add or if we miss things. And hopefully to hear from you over time how it has helped you and your teams in the uh, design and execution of these things. And speaking of making sure it's not missing things, that tube stop now has um, both DTRA deliverables, but also those from from other initiatives, from other organizations, Jane? That's correct. So we've embedded the deliverables with permission from Transcelerate and City, ACRP, SCRS, as they are relevant to the different tube stops. Um, and one of the most recent updates we made was including the MRCT guidelines on IRB submissions regarding DCT solutions and digital technologies, they're now embedded into our TubeStop 2. So you can probably expect to see that as an evolving digital toolkit. I encourage you to keep going back. That's great. That's great. Um, I love seeing the, the work of um, the entire community being made more accessible, more just easily discoverable. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm really proud to see that that kind of macro collaboration happening. So then the, the other thing that happened or got started in Q1 was we kicked off this concept of circles within DTRA. And, and I see a number of people in the audience who are part of our circle landscape. So just be ready when we call on you to tell us a little bit about your experience. So the difference between an initiative team and a circle is that the initiative teams are actually charged with deliverables and they have a scope and a charter. Circles are actually a way for our members to engage with each other on topics of interest, not based on role, not based on what org they're with or what their title is. This is a place where we have a, a kind of awesome mixture of experts and learning members together talking about these topics and some of the specifics 
within the topic. So let me give you an example. We have a circle on real world data and its use. And I see Aaron is here with us. He was just a special guest in that circle explaining how the guidances are shifting in FDA and how we can imagine a future where real world data is used differently in prospective clinical trials. Ted is often in different circles, especially around patient engagement and patient voice. And we've had some really fascinating conversations about the differences uh, around patient engagement expectations in the US versus Europe, for example, in the most recent patient voice circle. Um, so the point of sharing those examples is to tell you that this, the topics in the circle are defined by the members of the circle and anyone can lead a topic. It's just a conversation. It's not that you have to come with a solution or, um, or sign up to be on a team for six months. I'll stop there because I would love to hear Amir's thoughts on the circle and, and you've been in a couple of them. So what struck you about those? Well, I think what I love about circles is that um, I would love to have more education opportunities for folks that are not on the leadership council. So I think anyone who's a member of one of our organizations can come to the circles and they don't have to be the expert in anything, they can learn. So for me, it's a huge opportunity for anyone really who's in our associated organizations to get involved, either contribute their expertise or just learn about a topic they're interested in. So for me, it's a fantastic learning opportunity, growth opportunity, career advancement opportunity. So for me, for all those reasons, I think circles, they have been very successful, so I can see why. I mean, to me, it's just for many reasons, a great opportunity. I, I just love that we can go deeper within um, our uh, community, within the orgs that are so actively involved in DTRA today that, you know, we have great leaders uh, working on decentralized methods and their adoption, but hopefully, you know, these circles give an opportunity to go uh, a couple of levels deeper in the org and get more people, uh, you know, being able to connect and engage with one another. Okay, so now is the awkward moment where I actually ask people who've been part of circles to come up on stage and tell us from your perspective what's what's great about them or actually what we need to evolve with them because we're about to kick off a number of new circles and your feedback is really helpful to us. So who's willing to raise their hand or shall I just call on someone? All right, I've got Aaron coming up to the stage. I think. Yes, there he is. Aaron, you were just in a circle. Do you have any feedback or observations? Hmm, I think I lost Aaron. Okay, Ted, do you mind? Sh oh, here's Dina. Dina's got her hand raised. That's awesome. There you go. Now you're up on stage with us. Good morning, <laughs> Dina. 
So Dina is actually like Hi. our, um, I'll call it, she is our um, steward of the patient voice circle, which doesn't mean that she's the host every time we have a discussion, but she sort of makes sure that people know it's happening and she invites people to attend, etc. She doesn't have to lead every topic. Um, so Dina, share a little bit about what that's been like. And now I see Erin is back. So after you finish, <laughs> okay. we'll get Erin there too. Great. Well, thanks for bringing me up. I love the circles because it's a way that you can foster connections with people that you wouldn't normally have the opportunity to speak with. People are very open and sharing. Um, you learn a lot. I've, I've heard multiple people say that they didn't know certain things and didn't have access to certain um, groups that even didn't even know they existed. So just learning about things that other people are doing from different walks of life in the clinical research ecosystem is just, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of special. And um, low commitment, you don't have to show up every week, or I'm sorry, not every week, but it's bi-monthly every, every time. It's if your um, schedule allows. And we, we focus on discussions around the patient voice and different activities related to decentralized clinical trials, which um, different groups are doing things differently. And just the whole learning experience has been awesome. And feedback is really great from from patients directly. We've had experts like Sarah McHugh and Cannon and um, Michelle Shogren um, talking about bringing different players in the clinical trial ecosystem together to improve innovation efforts, all different types of things that, that just come up about advertising to patients, just things that you wouldn't normally, you know, hear maybe in, in your in your world of, you know, that wherever you work and what your focus is. Um, cultural differences, very interesting. Um, making new friends, having access to um, different opinions and views and, and work. So yeah, I, I love them too. And, and Sorry, I didn't mean to overspeak you, Dina. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think you were in this circle. Um, one of my real aha moments this year actually happened in the circle around patient recruitment, where we talked about how AI can help, might help, isn't yet helping. What we're hearing can be done versus what we're experiencing is reality. I think that was in August and it was just fascinating because it led to such an interesting conversation around how do IRBs review the concept of AI driven patient recruitment? What's different, if anything, and what do we need to think about to really optimize those tools? Oh, and here comes Ted. So I'm going to let Aaron chime in because he was actually one of our special guests, the expert in a very recent circle on real world data. And then I'll turn to Ted. Hi, Jane, and thanks for uh, bringing this up. I, I echo what Dina was saying as well. Like, um, I really appreciated both the opportunity, I think, to have a focused topic, but also the informality a bit around that. Um, it felt like even though at times or I prepared to kind of have more of a presentation and 
certainly the kind of presentation component allowed me to focus on certain highlights. There was quite a bit of a feeling of discussion between you and me and Matt Beach, um, some of the commentary in the chat that uh, uh, I appreciated. That it didn't just feel like kind of a lecture from my perspective, but rather a bit of discussion and kind of highlighting on some of the things that I was kind of getting feedback on in real time. Uh, and so hopefully, at least from a presenter perspective, I, I appreciated that. Um, and hopefully that also, it sounds like it probably resonated with the audience as well. Absolutely. And, and that's actually a really good call out, Aaron, because any of you here who is either an expert or a learner can either volunteer to kind of host the conversation as an expert or a learner is just about getting the conversation started and then going in the direction that people want it to head, which Aaron did brilliantly, of course. And um, I have to review the recording. We always record the circles, by the way. So if you can't make them in person, they are available. But there was so much content in your conversation, Aaron, that I have to go back and, and do a revisit. So thank you so much for sharing your expertise and wisdom to a group of learners. I really love that. Now, Mr. Ted, how would you like to talk about circles? Well, you know, first, I think one of the best things that I've been able to be part of is the circle. Uh, I've been on both sides of the conversation and want to echo uh, what Aaron and Dina said. Uh, it's uh, I, I was fortunate enough to be working with uh, uh, some of our friends from uh, Rosh Hashanah Tech uh, with a uh, uh, AI circle that uh, Jane mentioned and uh, others, uh, as well as uh, been part of the patient voice and the patient diversity uh, circles. And I think the piece that really resonated with me is the is the openness to new ideas. You know, I think that the industry is cautious for good reason, uh, but everyone is out there trying to do something that uh, is gonna move the needle with their respective uh, business outcomes that they're driving at. And that was really, it just came across to me uh, very, very nicely that uh, uh, people were open to that. And I think part of the reason that, that idea, those ideas came out is because of the structure of the circle. And, you know, it's a conversation and there's not, there's not necessarily uh, trying to move the conversation from point A to point B. It's more of a, you know, let's let's dialogue on this and get this going. And so I think that I, I just wanted to applaud DTRA and the whole group for that structure. It's it's something that uh, I think takes advantage of of uh, the uh, the mind share and the knowledge that we have in this industry. That's wonderful feedback, and one hopes that that's the sort of folks who are part of DTRA because they're all open to new ideas. <laughs> right. so. It should be. And I, I do need to shout out. Uh, I, I, I love the new structure of the, uh, the website you got, you all have. Uh, I think that that encapsulizes so many co complex part of what I've uh, always been impressed with is, you know, there's so, so much complexity in this entire process and that structure that you guys put in that new website I think really helps uh, both old and new learners uh, in getting to the uh, uh, understanding how these things are all interconnected. So shout out to that group that 
did that. I think some of them are on this call here, but it was nice. It was a good job. Well, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to make a shout out to people to join the circles. If you're part of a member organization, it's easy to join. You can just sign up right from the main web page and page might actually drop the link in. Um, <coughs> pardon me. <coughs> Last week, for example, <coughs> we had a session about the use of EHR in patient recruitment and whether or not that's really fulfilling its promise yet. <coughs> and it was such an interesting conversation. We're going to dive into an even deeper segment on that in our <coughs> Pardon me, I'm going to choke over here. So Amir, I'm handing it over to you. We have huge effort by a lot of people to improve the website, so I'm very happy to uh, get that. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if we're going to move on from uh, the circles or not. Oh, Craig, are you back? Oh, I could hear Craig's background noise at least. Um, one of the things maybe while we wait for Jane to uh, finish her coughing and go through DTRA stuff, I think one of the things we should definitely also talk about today is the difficult environment in which all of us I think, are operating this year, no question about that. So um, certainly at this time of year, I'm thinking about all the people who've been laid off, whether it's pharma or other companies. So there's a difficult environment there, which I want to make sure the we did bring up the elephant in the room, but it's been a challenging year. We've been, you know, very successful DTRA um, delivering on our initiatives and people working hard when it's not their day job, which always impresses me. Uh, but I think also I just want to make sure we bring up the fact that it's, it's been a certainly a difficult 23 for many people. Um, now, I think the jury is out on 24, and I'm happy to have that debate. I'm seeing some hopeful signs for 24 personally, but. Uh, it's, um, it, I just want to acknowledge that that's a bit of a difficult time for a lot of people. Um, we should talk about that as well. But uh, is your coughing fit over, Jane? Or I think I'm going to survive. Okay. <clears throat> Thanks. <laughs> it certainly was a challenging year for many different sectors of the economy and for lots of people in those different sectors. So. We welcome anyone to chime in on that if you wish to, but I am truly hopeful that 2024 will be different. Oh, Carrie has something to say. Wonderful. Uh, <clears throat> Carrie, come on up and go off mute. Thanks so much, Jane. Can you guys hear me? Yes. Yep, we can. Yep. Oh, great. Um, so I think one of the things that's really interesting that um, I learned throughout the year, and I'm sure this is a pain point for everyone, um, but this was from Scope, from the time I was at Scope all the way through to the end of the year, is that as a as on working on the sponsor side, um, one thing that we continuously run into is for all of these amazing new service lines and technology and systems that we have available to us, it is really challenging to have to have a lot of vendors on one study. And I think it's not just a challenge for us, but a challenge for our CRO partners, a challenge for all of our vendors to align with what we're doing on the trial. Um, and I heard that from other, um, other pharma or biotech at Scope, 
and then again throughout the year as I've had conversations with folks. So I think that's one thing that we can all work to solve for. And I, what I really appreciate about this group and DTRA and the opportunity to speak with others is it feels like a really safe environment to share information, whereas in the past, it may have been that, well, maybe we're going to hold on to that type of information because we want that for our company or for our institution. So I, I really love this kind of information sharing and trying to solve for something that's really going to change or evolve the entire clinical trial ecosystem that we're all working in. So I, I really appreciate the opportunity to do that. So I'm looking forward to the circles in 2024 and, and how we solve for this. So, Kerry, I'll ask you, I guess, to me, that's more of a cultural, political question, quite honestly, which is the U.S. system by its nature, unlike some other places, um, everyone's free to start a company, everyone's uh, free to compete, and there is no centralized structure like an NHS in England where, you know, once the NHS chooses something, then everyone uses it. So, do you think within our cultural, political system, there's actually any way to have just, you know, not have a lot of vendors in the system? So that's a great question. I will say, Amir, one thing that I, I believe Jane brought this up in one of the circle discussions I was in in the last couple of months is it's really trying to figure out what the, how to, how to go about giving a proposal or influencing internally for folks who um, are not so adept to change um, and I, because it's change management, and it's also understanding how to do things in a non-traditional way. Because as mu as many of us are really interested in this and passionate about it, there's still some level of folks who are kind of putting up the block to say, "Yeah, maybe, but let's just do it this way." So I do think um, your your point is very well heard and understood about navigating the U.S. ecosystem. But I also think it's about trying to understand how we can provide the best use cases and the best proposals to influence change. Huh. Well, I love that thinking, Carrie, and that's exactly why one of the tools we're working on now with a couple of our leaders is um, a playbook for change management across the framework of the tube stop. Like, what do you need to think about? Who do you need to involve? How exactly do you go about that change management conversation and at what point in the trial life cycle? But another interesting perspective that came up in a circle not too long ago was that one of the leads was um, talking about exactly what you were mentioning, Carrie, just how complex the vendor landscape is and how it feels like DCTs have added to that complexity. And it was an interesting moment for me because I actually was thinking I saw the other way in that the traditional trials I was running we kept adding more and more and more vendors to deal with point solutions and the premise in part of DCTs was maybe you could use more of a centralized approach to decrease the number of vendors it it's interesting because I think as a whole trials are increasing the vendor landscape not just DCTs. And to Amir's point, I don't know how we're going to navigate that complexity until we decide that simpler trial designs are useful. So it's sort of culture, but it's also design, I think. 
<clears throat> anyway, let's move on. Circles are continuing and we're adding some new ones. For example, we will have a circle about AI and how that fits into clinical trials. We'll have some geographic and regional circles for our members in Japan and China, Western Europe, and there are a few other topics coming. So watch that space on LinkedIn and other places. But now it's probably time to acknowledge that in May, the FDA released a draft guidance on DCTs and how they'll be part of the clinical trial landscape and what they were expecting. And we spent a lot of time thinking about that guidance. Probably everyone in this audience did. I'm very curious to hear from people how they responded to it, um, if they took the opportunity to respond directly or as part of their company, and also to hear the wish list of what do you hope comes out in the final guidance, which might happen next year. So again, anyone who wants to can raise their hand. And I'll just say a big thank you to our members because our Regulatory Affairs Council took this on with a vengeance in a good way. And <clears throat> every company that wanted to had an opportunity to chime in with their thinking on the guidance in a written format. And at the end of the day, I think we had more than 80 pages of content submitted from our members as a response to the guidance around different topics, which we then um, synthesized and pared down a bit. So our final submission was somewhere in the order of 50 pages. Now I feel so much empathy for the people at FDA who are reviewing the thousand comments they received because I don't imagine it all showed up in the same format from each submission. Jane, they used AI to just do it all. Um, we could ask. I'm not. I'm not sure that they are, but maybe that tool would help them. Um, anyhow, I'm curious if anyone in the audience digested that draft guidance and if they have any feedback to offer, or if any of our panelists up here on stage want to chime in on that topic. Okay, well, I'll get us started. So we heard from Dr. Klutz at the DTRA annual meeting that they are looking at all those responses right now. And one of the key areas that came up in terms of responses was exactly how RPIs expected to provide oversight and trials. You're not changing the requirements, but now you've added healthcare providers into the research ecosystem. How does that work? What do you need from us? Are we gonna be held to the same standards? What about vendor selection? And if we don't know the vendors, are we still accountable to oversee the trial in the same way that we always have as PIs? How does the 1572 get filled out? There were just myriad of questions. So it was a good lesson for me personally that writing policy documents with the intention to provide simplicity doesn't always translate to operational clarity. 
So that means people see where you're trying to get to with a policy, but they don't know how to implement it yet with a practice. <clears throat> so anyone have thoughts to share about that? You know, I'll jump in, Jane. I, I think this is Ted. I, this, this is one of the things that I thought the circles helped uh, me understand uh, some of the elements of this, this guidance. And, you know, the, this is overly simplistic, but uh, thinking of the FDA, uh, before I kind of got into uh, the, the new draft guidance, it almost was, was like the big boogeyman and you were waiting for them to uh, come down on a, a study and have problems. And what came forward, and especially with conversations with sponsors on the circles, was that you know this guidance really is trying to open up the communication uh, so that we can use HCPs as long as they're doing routine care. And we can have uh, a hybrid model as long as we're making sure that we got uh, uh, safety for the patients and we're getting good data for the studies. And the guidance in general feels like it gave that, that appeal to it. And then of course, then there was some statements when you got to read into the fine print where they almost seem to be doing a CYA and saying, well, but you know, make sure that that's written directly into the study and make sure that uh, that that communication is done. So it kind of straddled the fence a little bit. Uh, but I think ultimately the feedback from uh, groups like DTRA and everybody else is going to open up trials so that we can take it out and bring it into the community. That's right on, Ted. Like that, I know that's really the intention, and now it's a question of translating the attention yep. intention into a set of work processes that people feel comfortable with. <clears throat> and so, to exactly. that point, um, Dr. Klutz mentioned they're trying to think through what sort of examples they could provide, either with or following the issuance of a final guidance, which I think will help. They won't be able to cover every situation, of course, but I think some examples could be helpful. And in case you didn't know, we provided some examples in our response to the draft guidance around how you might navigate the complexity of filling out regulatory forms using these different DCT modalities like an HCP or a pharmacy-based research site. And we actually put them in there specifically to say, maybe we're not interpreting this correctly and we are open to your feedback. So I'm not sure if they've reviewed our response yet, but maybe we will get some feedback, which is exactly what I was hoping for in the engagement process. I bet you will, and I bet that it's going to be incumbent upon uh, all of us as thought leaders to go out and take some uh, uh, good calculated uh, use case risks uh, and show why this works and uh, make sure that, again, we're keeping patients safe and we're getting good data. And we can really look for signals on patient 
safety and therapeutic efficacy. That's so. Oh, Shalon, please come up on stage. Hey, everybody, really enjoying the conversation. I, Jane, for me, the take home from the DCT draft guidance, I think it's um, it was an endorsement from the regulators that they are not the barrier or they should not be viewed as the barrier for adoption of DCT. But I think that they <laughs> threw a, a challenge flag and um, I think it's up to traditional sites and academic medical centers and research sites to decide how they're going to respond to that guidance. A lot of the responsibility that they gave, like Ted was mentioning, are to the sites to have um, SOPs or the ability to articulate what their PI oversight will look like. Um, and, and I hope that sites are looking at it as an opportunity to really empower themselves to think about the work that they do, the catchment areas that they serve, and the patient access that they've historically had to, to really rethink what, what that can look like if they are able to execute on, uh, on, on different aspects of those, um, of those guidances. Oh, I love that. So how might you envision that happening for sites? Like, do you feel they have to rewrite all their SOPs or do you think that it's more of a, oh, and we're going to interpret it in this way now? Well, first, they need to take a deep breath and decide if they want to rethink how they've been doing trials or not. Um, because a lot of folks, a lot of sites, I'm thinking more larger academic sites, may not think that they have a problem. Um, but in cases where they do feel like they want to rethink and they want to change how you know the, they are serving their communities and their and their um, and their locations, I, I don't think that they need to redo. 98% of the work that they're doing, but they do need to think through specific processes and interpretations. And I am confident that they'll realize that the existing SOPs that they have are already covering those. And we may have made the issue much more complicated than it needs to be by giving DCT um, its own name. And I, I believe a lot of sites will see how they've been involved in those activities and they just need to think about um, accelerating it. <clears throat> and some of the challenges that I think sites face when they think about these is to not have a good or, or appropriate, I should say, an appropriate use case to have those discussions around. So I wonder if one of the things DTRA can provide can be a, a sample protocol or use case for sites to then take internally and see how well their existing processes um, will withstand uh, a specific protocol. And, and I've been sort of collecting different types of oncology protocols that are publicly available. Um, you're, you're aware of that, Jane, you know, in terms of um, uh, <clears throat> making it real for sites to, to, to think about it. Otherwise, you know, those discussions and those conversations tend to become hijacked by, you know, the, the most difficult or most complicated procedure, which we all know wouldn't really be 
part of the first couple of studies that we would ask for um, uh, for a site or, or an investigator to to look at. So um, really excited about the work that GTR is doing to um, to to make it easier and to you know start putting together maybe a, a playbook of what those FAQs would look like from a site and um, and what are the questions they should ask internally as they um, uh, embark on you know restructuring how they do their trials. Well, that is like the perfect segue. So thank you so much because I was going to say that after we reviewed the guidance and provided our input, we started to focus a lot on listening to sites and understanding the friction around adopting DCT methods. <clears throat> and to your point, Shalon, one of the things that we are thinking about is how might we create a way for sites to experience a trial without running a trial and sort of get the feel of that. But I don't know if that's going to happen. It's just a big idea. One thing that is going to happen, and we're getting ready to start this in the new year, is working through a playbook of questions that sites could make sure they get answers to throughout the design and study startup process so they are more comfortable and confident that they understand what is expected of them in executing the DCT methods. And I'll give you a real tactical example. When we're using a new technology that includes a wearable, who's going to provide the tech support? That's a question that comes up a lot. It isn't that every sponsor will have the same answer, but knowing that the sites have a way to get the answer might help us with the adoption phase. It seems simplistic, but if these processes are new, I don't know that we have made it easy for people to know what do I need to ask and to whom. So that's one thing we're getting started on. Not exactly SOPs, but maybe it's a starter guide. Craig, I see you're back. Did you want to chime in? Well, I love this topic around, you know, the evolution of tools to help sites with readiness and demystifying um, what's uh, on the continuum of feasibility, what's particularly accessible, what many sites were already doing and how they're doing it. And that, that concept of a, of a protocol for self-evaluation, I think, is very interesting. Um, and I'll just give a shout out that Dina is actually going to help us with a collab that's going to focus on how we make it clearer how sites could be involved in the design of clinical trials and the discussion on which methods for DCTs fit in a best fit manner with those designs and those patient populations. Now, I'm not at all inferring that the sites would have full decision-making accountability. But what we have heard, and Dina, you can chime in, is sites haven't been asked in a consistent way or in a time frame that was early enough for sponsors to integrate their feedback. Dina, what would you like to add to that? Right, um, we hear that and they're so giving of their time. Um, you know, They're not asking to be paid, they just wanna be in at the, they want a seat at the table. They want to be heard. They want 
sponsors, solution providers, to hear them out about the things that have worked, the things that haven't worked, and to give their opinion about you know how to design a, a DCT uh, program into a trial. And they wanna be asked early on. So that's what I'm super excited about is giving the sites that voice and I know we're going to drop the mic, but anyway, initiative for uh, 2024 is one of them is going to be the site voice and I'll be leading that initiative. And we're, we're really excited about that. So um, my hope is we find a way to include patient and site voice. Yes. And site voice that is beyond KOL voice. And mm -hmm. I can say I was part of that problem in my past. So let's see if we can do better. We will do better. Okay. So with two minutes left, Amir, is there anything else you want to drop in about the year in reflection? Um, I should just would like to hear more about other folks and what, what their experience was or anything else they want to say. I'm always more happy to listen. So uh, if anyone else has thoughts about what they've experienced or what their thoughts are about this year, I think we'll talk about next year at the beginning of the year. But anything you want to talk about? Anyone on the stage already? You know, I, I think it would be remiss not to at least do a shout out that, you know, there's a lot of good talent out there right now. A lot of our pharma sponsors in the community are, are doing um, reductions. And, uh, and so just keeping an eye out and, and supporting the, uh, the folks in the community who um, are either looking or just helping to amplify when there are great new opportunities that, get, uh, that people lay eyes on, you know, just doing everything that we all can to um, help make sure that folks out there uh, get visibility to those um, it certainly is is ending a bumpy year for uh, for many folks out there and you know um, I'm optimistic as we start to think about our forecast for the new year um, you know optimistic that we'll see some of that market stabilize yeah to emphasize what Craig said I know it's kind of a little hard to hear him but I think we're all thinking about how to help our friends and colleagues who are looking for new positions. So if anyone knows of anything, you know, do help others and do amplify like Craig says. Well, Jane, we are at the top of the hour. I'd, uh, I'd like to thank you and all the uh, all the friends who uh, joined us here on stage, Aaron, Dina, Ted, Carrie, Shalon, and the folks uh, jumping in in the uh, chat. We're gonna wrap up for 2023 here and look forward to reconvening at the start of the new year together. For folks that we won't talk to offline, wishing you all a happy and safe, healthy uh, holiday season. And we'll look forward to getting back together at the start of the new year. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Happy holidays. Happy holidays, everybody.